Dave, Bruce, Vicki, and Becky for the opening. Very much appreciated and very appropriate with what we will be speaking about this morning. But just before we do, let's just bow in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word and what your word says, Lord. And that your word convicts and challenges. And Lord, I especially pray that for myself this morning as I was preparing this message, how you convicted and challenged me with your words. And I just pray, Father, that you would just speak through me this morning, that the words that I speak this morning are your words. Just pray all of this in your son's most precious and holy name. Amen. We're going to be speaking from uh, chapter 14 of John this morning, verses 1 to 7. And I want you to imagine that you are there. You are there. You're one of the disciples. Because this message Christ has given to the disciples, but it's also a message for each and every one of us. I'd ask you to close your eyes, but I'm afraid that maybe some of you would fall asleep, so don't close your eyes, please. But before we get into chapter 14, I think it would be beneficial for us just to remind ourselves what was happening back in chapter 13. And Jim spoke on chapter 13, the last couple of verses, a couple of weeks before Christmas. What Jesus was, he was there with his disciples, and it was the Last Supper. Jesus is preparing them for what's going to be lying ahead of himself as well as them. He tells them that he's going to be betrayed by one of them. He was going to leave them, and they couldn't come with him. Not right now. Not just yet. You know, this wasn't the first time that he told, told them that he was going to be leaving them. And then the crushing blow to Peter. Jesus tells him that he's going to die him not once, but three times. Not once, but three times. You know, the disciples must have been totally confused. What they thought, hoped for, and believed wasn't going to happen. In fact, it was disappearing. Even though they heard Jesus more than once say he was going to leave them, they had a hard time to accept it. Or maybe they didn't want to. Maybe they didn't want to accept the fact that he was going to leave. You know, if it was me, and possibly you, we probably would have felt the same as they did. You're leaving? Why can't I come with you? But you're my Messiah. You're my Savior, my teacher, my friend, my hope. You're everything to me. I've just given you three years of my life to be with you. And you're leaving me now? What's going to happen to me when you're gone? Let's take a look at chapter 14 now. Starting in verse 1. I'll read those verses through. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and know the way. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him, and you have seen him. And just a couple more verses to this, please. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the way, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? If we are using one of the Brown Pew Bibles, uh, this passage is found on page 1,675. Christ tells them in verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. That is, don't be agitated, anxious. He knows the hearts of men. He knows the emotional upheaval his disciples are going through. Their hopes and desires are vanishing by him leaving them. They're filled with anxiety, fear, doubt, and uncertainty. But you know what's so amazing about this? Even though he knows what lies ahead of himself, the cross, being forsaken by his father, he still has a deep concern for his disciples and what they are going through. I want you to think of a time when you, myself, might have been at the lowest point in our life. Were we more concerned about ourselves or the concerns of others? Christ here is more concerned about them than himself. You know, John 14 has been referred to as one of the most comforting chapters in the New Testament. To quote Martin Luther, it was the best and most comforting sermon that Christ delivered on earth, a treasure, a jewel, not to be purchased with this world's goods. He then tells them, you believe in God, believe also in me. Believe here means to uh, have faith and trust. What Christ is trying to get across to the disciples, stop letting your hearts being troubled. Don't put your faith, trust, and belief in your feelings and emotions. They change. If you do, your belief will go up and down. Put your belief and trust in God, who never changes. The God that never leaves or forsakes you, who is always there with you, the same as yesterday, today, and forever. What about us? When our hearts are being troubled, and we're going through those difficult times in our lives, those deep times, those trials, upheavals in our lives, do we truly believe and trust God that he is there with us? That we are not alone? And that he will see us through those dark times, those deep times? We need to remember how many times in the past he has seen us through those times, as well as others. As well as others. He's always there with us. We're never alone. 
When Christ says, believe in God, and you believe also in me, what he's doing is reinforcing his oneness with the Father, his equality with his Father, his deity. Even verses 7 to 9, not to take away from Phil's message next week, uh, what he's doing is he says, you know me and know who I am, then you know the Father. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He knew that they had, that they believed that God was all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, all-caring, all-sufficient. You trust God. You believe in Him even though you've never seen Him. God's invisible. God is spirit. Believe also in me. Remember all the signs and miracles that you have witnessed, that you've seen me do. I just raised Lazarus from the dead. Even when I'm not with you, keep on believing in me. Don't stop. The last thing he told his disciples before he went to be with his father in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's always there with us. We're never alone. Next, Christ tells his disciples, in my father's house are many mansions. A more accurate translation instead of mansions would be dwelling places. The phrase dwelling places referred to where the Israelites lived. It was their home. He's letting them know why he's leaving. He's going to his father's house. That is God's house. And where does God live? Heaven. That's where Christ is going. He's going to heaven to be with his father. He's going to where his father lives. Why? To prepare a place for them. You know, Jesus leaving them and going to prepare a place for them also meant him going to the cross. His death, his resurrection, his ascending into heaven to be with God, his father. You know, if it wasn't for his death and resurrection, there wouldn't be salvation or forgiveness of sin. If he didn't ascend into heaven, but stayed here on earth, how would he have been able to prepare a place for them? For us. Also we read in John 14, another reason why he left. Uh, John 14 verses uh, 16 and 17 we read, And I pray the Father, sorry, I pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because I neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And verse 26 of 14 as well. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will reach out, he will reach you all things, sorry, will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. And in chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, we read, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness 
and of judgment. If Christ didn't leave the earth, how would he have been able to send the Holy Spirit? He tells them it's for their advantage that he leaves. Because he says the Holy Spirit will be their helper and he would teach them all things and remind them of the things that Christ had said to them in the past. He would also convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You know, just a thought. If Christ would have stayed here on earth, he probably could have only been at one place at a time. We know he could have went here and there. Star Wars, you know, or not Star Wars, but Star Trek, you know, beam me up kind of thing. He could have only been in one place at, at a time. But with the Holy Spirit coming, he's in more than one place at a time. He would be in all of them. And in 1 Corinthians 6.19 we read, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? It is he who is in you whom you have from God, and you are not your own. The advantage, too, of Christ leaving is that we have the Holy Spirit in us today as well. And we have those benefits, those blessings that the Holy Spirit gave to the disciples. He gives to us as well, too. You know, this is such an amazing promise that Christ is making. He says, I'm going to prepare a dwelling place for you in my Father's house. And I'm going to receive you into that room when your time comes. So why? That you can be there where I am and you can be with my Father. I'm also going to send you the Holy Spirit for your advantage to be your helper. You know, this applies to you and me as well. You know, in those days, when a son was getting married, before the wedding day, he would build a dwelling place onto his father's house. Not like today, you know. I was thinking that often when a couple gets married today, they build in-law suites for their parents. But back then, it was the other way around. If you had a lot of kids, boy, you had a really big house back then. So he'd build a dwelling place onto his father's house. And after he and his bride were married, that is where he would bring his bride to live. You know, this is such, such a beautiful picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. That's us. You know, throughout the Bible, the church is often referred to as the bride of Christ and Christ as the bridegroom. We read in John 3, verses 28 and 29, it's John the Baptist speaking here, and he says, Yes, Yourselves bear witness that that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy is mine fulfilled. And in Romans 7 verse 4 we read, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead 
to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead that you should bear witness to God. Christ has prepared a dwelling place for his bride. That's the church. That's us. Those who have accepted him as their Savior, Lord, and their bridegroom. And one day, this is so neat, he's coming back to receive his bride and bring her to his father's house to be with him, to be with his father. The other neat thing is she doesn't have to go by herself. Or like Christ is going to send someone else. He's coming himself together. And First Thessalonians <clears throat> chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, we read, For the Lord himself will descend from, from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Isn't that such an amazing thought? That when Christ returns and he gathers the church, he gathers us, we'll be with him forever. How amazing that is and how beautiful that is. And we come to verse 5. And I really like Thomas. And I'll tell you why. Because in Thomas, that could be Joe. You know, I can relate so well to Thomas. And Thomas says to him, he says, But Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? I really like Jesus' reply. Like he could really say, Come on, Thomas. What do you mean? You don't know where I'm going? But, Thomas, but Christ answers him in such a really beautiful way. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What Christ is not saying here, and I stress that not saying here, is that I'm, uh, sorry, he's not saying here is I'm one of the ways to the Father, or I'll show you one of the ways to the Father. What he's saying is that I am the way, the only way to the Father. If you want a dwelling place in my Father's house, then there's only one way to get there, and that's through me. You know, many think to believe that there is only one way to God, to heaven, is being biased, is being narrow-minded. They believe there's more than just one way, and through Jesus is not the only way to God. You can come to God through deep devotion, religion, prayer, good works, sacrifice, giving, etc., etc., etc. But Proverbs 14.12 tells us, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is a way of death. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, we read, all our righteousness is filthy rags. You know, many of the other world's religions say you have to do something through struggling. You need to earn your way to get to God. But at least all will put it this way. Other religions are spelled do because they teach that you have to do a bunch of religious rituals to try to please God. But Christianity is spelled done 
because Christ has done it all. Picture this. A father and his little child. You know, the child wants the father to pick them up, to hug them, to hold them. All they want is to be in their father's arms. They reach and reach and urge the father to pick them up. But the child never is quite able to reach high enough. You know, this is a picture of desperation. You know, many have tried to reach up to God, but never quite reach high enough. You know, other religions are a system of rituals and commandments, which might bring a person closer to God, but never close enough. What makes Christianity different is now picture this, the same father, the same little child. The child reaches up to their father to be lifted up, to hold them in his arms. But instead of looking down at his child, he lovingly reaches down to where the child is with compassion and strength and lifts the child up into his arms and brings them close to himself. God came down to us in the form of Jesus Christ and made the way possible for us to be lifted up into the arms of God. He came down to us so we could come up to him. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19, we read, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed us to the word of reconciliation. And in Romans uh, 5, verse 8, we read, But God demonstrated his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, it was God's plan right from the very beginning, the very beginning to reconcile us, to restore us to himself, not imputing, in other words, not taking inventory of our sins. And that even while we were still sinners, he showed his love to us. And that Christ died for each and every one of us. You know, there are religions that say they lead to God. But is it the God of the Bible? The God that we believe, the God that we read about from Genesis to Revelation, the one who created the universe, you and me, who loves unconditionally, who's full of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. But also, we need to remember that the God of the Bible that we believe, that we read about, is holy, righteous, and a just judge. And because of sin, we have been separated from God. We read this morning from Romans 3, where Paul says there's none righteous. No, not one. You know what that means? You and me. No flesh will be justified. And the word justified means innocent. We're all guilty. Each and every one of us. 
But Paul goes on to say, but the righteousness from God has been made possible. That God sent His Son as a living sacrifice of atonement that is payment in full through Jesus Christ and the shedding of His blood. We read also in Romans 5, verses 9 and 10, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And in chapter 6, uh, verse 23, we read, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The verses that we read in Romans 3, verses I mean, chapter, Romans 3, chapter, verses 23 and 24, basically tells us that we've been justified through the redemption of Jesus Christ and that God's wrath was satisfied. It says that Christ was our propitiation. It means atoning victim. Christ was that atonement. And in Acts 4, verses 10 to 12, we read, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead by him, this man stands here before you whole. This is the same stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there any, sorry, sorry, nor is there salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven, even given among men, by which we must be saved. Doesn't it make perfect sense that the only way to come to God is by the way that he made possible for us to come through? Through the cross of Christ, we have been justified. Someone said one time that word justified means just as we've never sinned. And that's what Christ has done for us. You would think that there was another way to God, that Jesus Christ, God's only Son, would not have had to die. But Christ did not die, only die because God loved us, but God does love us. He didn't only die so our sins could be forgiven, although they are forgiven. He didn't only die so we could have eternal life, but as a result of his sacrifice, we have eternal life. The main reason was to satisfy the wrath, the judgment, and righteousness of a holy and just God, thereby making it possible for God to show us mercy righteously. Christ says he is the truth. He just doesn't tell the truth. Everything about him is true. He embodies the true meaning of truth. All of scripture is his story. He also says that he is the life. We just don't have eternal life through him, but we also have a more abundant life because of him. 
If you are here this morning and you are seeking God, let me propose this to you. If you are diagnosed with a terminal disease and you are told by a specialist that there was only one cure, only one, no other, 100% guaranteed, they'd stake their life on it. Would you not take it? I know I would. You know, each and every one of us is born with a terminal disease. It's called sin. We have already read, for the wages of sin is death. That is, and that's just not a physical death, but it also means separation from God. You know, we can try to cure it ourselves or use other cures. We can ignore it and don't think about it. But you know, the result will always be the same. Death. Or, we can believe in the cure. 100% guaranteed that God the specialist has provided for us. His son, Jesus Christ. There's one more thought about this. Is that this cure is free. Even if you're retired and you don't have a health plan, it's free. It has already been bought and paid for in full. It doesn't cost you anything at all. Not a penny. All you have to do is accept it and take it. In preparing this message, I asked myself a question. And it was a really heart-wrenching question. What's my motivation in serving God? Is it because I feel I owe Him for everything He's done for me? How He's blessed me? Even my salvation? You know, as believers, we should never base our hope, our assurance, God's grace, mercy, forgiveness on the good works that we do. It rests completely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. You know, I really like this saying, and I know we've heard it more than once, there's nothing I can do to make God love me more, and there's nothing I can do to make God love me less, because Christ has done it all. Jim Elliott, a missionary who was martyred by the Aka Indians from Ecuador, the night that he accepted Christ as his Savior, prayed this prayer. He said, Lord Jesus, if you did this all for me, there is nothing I can do for you that will ever repay the debt that I owe you. I commit myself here and now to go wherever you would want me to go and do. I am yours. Do as you please. Last week, Bruce reminded us from Ephesians 2.10 that we are God's workmanship and that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works beforehand and that we should walk in them. God has prepared a good work for each and every one of us to do for him. But I'm also reminded of what Kerry said in his last message what my motivation should and needs to be in serving Him. It's to glorify Him, to worship Him, to show Him adoration. Why? Because I love Him and He deserves it. Also in studying these verses, I've been personally convicted that since I've been accepted, no, sorry, since I have accepted Jesus Christ as a cure for my terminal disease, sin, that God would show me and guide me in what more I should be doing to let others know about him. 
that the only way to him is through his son, Jesus Christ. And that Jesus alone reveals God. Jesus alone was God's chosen sacrifice. And Jesus alone is God's Savior for us. My challenge is to be willing to do it. You know, whatever the means, we are to show others that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. And just in closing, I'd just like to read just a couple more verses that are challenging to me and hopefully to you as well. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And in Philippians 3, verse 15, another common verse to us, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Steve? Let's just bow in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your Son and what your Son accomplished for us on the cross. And Lord, my prayer is that each and every one of us, Lord, would just hold on to those truths that you provided for us a cure to our terminal disease. In Jesus' name, amen.